Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. Thanks to Tom Morello for getting us started, as he does on each and every episode, with Let Freedom Ring. We appreciate you, Tom, for all that you do. As you know, we open each seminar, each edition of the podcast, by turning to another artist, a poet. Today we're going to have two poems by two different poets. First is Denez Smith, the transcendent Minneapolis poet. The poem is called Juxtaposing the Black Boy and the Bullet. One is hard and the other tried to be. One is fast and the other was faster. One is loud and one is a song with one note and endless rest. One's whole life is a flash. Both spend their life trying to find a warmth to call home. Both spark quite the debate. Some folks want to protect them. Some think we should just get rid of the damn things altogether. That's Juxtaposing the Black Boy and the Bullet by Denez Smith. Our second poet is the great Gwendolyn Brooks, and the poem is Patrick Bowie of Cabrini Green. What is devout is never to forget, never to shelve the value and the beauty. Patrick, vivid, valid, lyrical. We cannot reach, we cannot touch the radiant richness that was Patrick. Cannot be reached again, cannot be hugged, cannot be visited. What is devout is never to forget that he was with us for a little while. Our splendor, our creative spirit, our sparkling contribution, our flash of influence interrupted, our interrupted man. Gwendolyn Brooks. Let's continue with our second regular feature, A Free Write, impromptu, unedited, spur of the moment. Here you can pause the podcast for just a few moments. Well, actually, you can pause the podcast for as long as you like, which you surely already know, but I feel the need to stipulate that here because we got a note from an older listener who complained that we didn't provide adequate time for the free write, meaning that he didn't pause the podcast at all. So pause here for as long as you like and write wildly, no need for edits or revisions, in response to this prompt. Write a paragraph in which you describe your radiant richness, put into words as best you can your unique creative spirit, and report on the sparkling contribution you hope to make. You are the one of one. Start writing. If you want to share your response to the writing prompt, email the voice memo to underthetree at gmail.com. We might play it in a future episode, so make sure you introduce yourself and tell us where you're from. You can also follow us at Under the Tree Podcast on Instagram and subscribe to our YouTube channel for clips and interviews. Okay, back to the show. We'll be joined in a moment by a comrade who was a member of the Black Panther Party 50 years ago and is still fighting the good fight, joining us today to drop some knowledge on us from decades in the struggle. 
He'll share some history and some hope. Of course, history is both the story of what happened, the facts on the ground, as well as the human interpretation and meaning-making perspectives that frame and circulate those grounded facts, or that which is said to have happened. People are, then, actors in history and narrators of history, subjects and interpreters both. Here's an obvious example, fact and story. Robert E. Lee surrendered at the Appomattox Courthouse in 1865, but the narrative about the noble Confederate lost cause dominated the story about the Civil War for a century, and it endures to this day. That narrative holds that the foundation of the Confederacy during the American Civil War was just and heroic, defending both the Southern way of life and states' rights in the face of overwhelming and unjust Northern aggression. The North won the war, but the South won the war to explain the war. Or again, in 1492, a genuine adventurer in the pay of Castilian royalty stumbled upon the Bahamas, or invaded, conquered, took the initial steps toward what would become, in time, the Colombian Holocaust. Hundreds of years later, that act, Columbus's men coming ashore, was made into a narrative, quote, the discovery of America, and that naming created a powerful and abiding narrative frame that again endures to this day. People are agents in that they occupy structural positions, worker, mother, father, farmer. They're also actors in history, moving within the concentric circles of context, economic condition, cultural surround, flow of time, and they're subjects, narrators who tell that story. So, for example, workers, as agents, leave a factory in mass every day. One day they, as actors, leave work in protest over conditions. They become narrators when they call it a strike, and leaving the factory has a different meaning, and the fight to control the story is underway. Of course, history is always open to interpretation and reinterpretation. Things take on different meanings and shadings and significances as new events unfold. The Chinese premier Zhou Enlai was asked in the early 1960s what he thought the impact of the French Revolution of the 18th century had been on the 20th century Chinese revolutions. His response was, it's too soon to tell. It's time for our guest speaker series, Activists, Authors, and Artists After Hours, pronounced ah, like a big sigh, maybe a question mark, an exclamation point. But it's where we talk to folks who can help us think more deeply about this political moment, about the concept of freedom, about where we are on the clock of the universe, and about what is to be done, or what the known demands of us now. We look at the circumstances of our lives, where we've come from, where we're heading, we try to unleash our most radical imaginations and ask ourselves, not just what's going on, but what should be done? How might things be otherwise? And what is our responsibility? It's my great pleasure today to welcome Aaron Dixon under the tree. He's a lifelong freedom fighter, a real inspiration to activists for decades. And I am just uh, thrilled that you've been able to join us. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you for having me. Um, I know that you were, once upon a time, marched with Martin Luther King. I know that you got on the bus to integrate the schools. 
That's way back, ancient history, but living history nonetheless. And I know that you joined the Black Panther Party and became a captain in Seattle. Could you talk a little bit about those days? What brought you to the movement and what made you move from from some of your earlier actions to joining the Panther Party and what that's indicated, signified for you? Well, uh, I uh, owe a lot to my uh, parents uh, for uh, having the teaching my siblings and I about uh, true understanding of, about the political history of America. Uh, and that, that uh, led me to, um, you know, march with Martin Luther King when I was 13 years old. And, and after that, I got involved in the civil rights movement. And uh, when I started at the University of Washington, I uh, helped found the first black student union on the, uh, in the Northwest. And uh, it was the assassination of Martin Luther King that led me to join the Black Panther Party, which uh, I think the assassination of Martin Luther King led a lot of young people, uh, black, white, red, yellow, brown, to uh, become more militant and uh, start joining a lot of other uh, militant organizations uh, after the uh, murder of Martin Luther King, because when they murdered Martin Luther King, they, in effect, murdered the uh, civil rights movement. And what did your parents think when you joined the Panther Party? They were, uh, they were very supportive. Uh, they even helped us launch our first breakfast program. And, you know, they did, uh, they helped us with fundraisers and, you know, uh, they, they supported my brothers and I, uh, uh, wholeheartedly. You sound like a person who's close to his family. You you still close with your brothers? Yes, yes, I am. How many do you have? I have two brothers and one sister. Uh-huh. And are your folks still living? My mother is. Oh, how delightful. How old is she now? She's 95. Well, bless her. How about yes. that? And uh, you're, still, um, you're still fighting the fight um, all these years later. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, as long as I have a breath in me, I'm going to be fighting for justice uh, and rights for all human beings. Well, what sustains you? I mean, people often think of folks who've been in this for the long haul and wonder, how do you not burn out? Or do you go through periods of burnout? Or what, what makes you come back? What inspires you? What keeps you going? Yeah, I do get burned out from time to time. Um, and I think what really keeps me going is the burning desire for justice and the, the uh, feeling that, uh, and that the anger and the hate that I have for injustice. And, uh, you know, that, that still burns in me and it will always burn in me until, you know, my last dying breath. And it sounds like that burning desire was implanted by your mom, your dad, your siblings. Uh, yeah, yeah, it, it definitely was uh, uh, planted by my uh, parents and my ancestors. You know, my my family's from Chicago, um, and so uh, my father uh, marched with um, Paul Robeson. He was involved with Paul Robeson's uh, wow. youth. Uh, program that he had uh, he, and he did that after he came back from World War II after uh, he witnessed a Marine in Okinawa cut the breast off of a 
a Japanese woman. And and from that point he went he went AWOL. He went AWOL, eventually came back. Wow. That's a that's a chilling story. Um you know, you you thought of yourself in the Black Panther Party, and I'm thinking of Fred Hampton, a Chicago Black Panther, um, who always asked people in speeches to uh, repeat after him, I am a revolutionary. And so you were indeed, you declared yourself a revolutionary. Is that true? Yes, yes. When you joined the Black Panther Party, you became a revolutionary. And what is the difference between a revolutionary and say a rebel or just a, a, an activist? What makes it a step beyond? Well, uh, a revolutionary understands that the struggle is an international struggle, that it's a fight for all human beings on the face of the planet. And it's a fight that is, uh, is that you have to be dedicated, and, and most often you give up everything. You know, you give up your family even. You give up all the things that you thought you wanted to do or things that you wanted to be. You give up all those things to become a, a revolutionary, and you you know you dedicate your life to becoming a revolutionary and fighting for justice. I think that's the difference between, say, an activist or um, or just an organizer. You know, it's it's something where you have committed your your life to. And I might add that uh, you know, being a revolutionary is an act of love. You know, mm. uh, gi- giving. Uh, yourself to the struggle is an act of love and you know because you have you have love for the people that's the whole reason why why you're fighting and that's the whole reason why you give up everything uh, is for the people and for <clears throat> for justice uh, for all people all over the world and you're not satisfied with small changes I guess I guess you want something more profound more fundamental is that right Yes, because the small changes don't last long. You know, we've seen a lot of small changes over the last 40, 50 years, but look where we're at. Look at the situation that we're still in, which is, which is much worse than I've ever seen it. You know, we have mass incarceration. We have two and a half million people in prison. We have uh, millions of homeless people living on the streets and living in tents. Uh, you know, uh, police brutality is is worse than it's ever been. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we, we want complete change. You know, we want complete change. We want, you know, usually a, a, a revolutionary is fighting to overthrow the system, overthrowing the government. Uh, and that was the objective of the Black Panther Party. And we followed Malcolm X's lead, uh, Ballad or the Bullet. Mm. You know, uh, freedom by any, by any means necessary. So, um, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's what it's all about. And we talked about, back in those days, we talked about the capitalistic predatory system. I've recently been calling it racial capitalism, but I hear, heard Jim Lawson the other day refer to it as plantation capitalism. And that struck me as a very accurate term for what we're living in. Yeah. I call it super predatory capitalism mm-hmm. because you know uh, you know we've always had capitalism in this country, but also a lot of people don't realize we had a lot of socialism as well that that kind of got snuck in there, you know. How so? Uh, but, How so? Well, uh, the uh, wealthy from 
the 19, late 1930s, all the way up until 1981, when Ronald Reagan took office, the wealthy were being taxed at 70%. Mm. And, and, doing, and even uh, to pay for the war on poverty, I think it even went up higher than that. And so uh, what, you, what, you, what we had was that, you know, when I was going to college, when people in my generation were going to college, uh, our, our cost of tuition was very low because a lot of that tax that the rich were being taxed for was being paid to subsidize a lot of our college education. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when the Black Panther Party started the breakfast programs, across the country in 1974, the government uh, stepped in because we embarrassed them. And right. they uh, made the uh, free breakfast program a national program for breakfast and lunch. And, and they also, when we opened up 13 free medical clinics, uh, the government also uh, in 1974 allocated uh, millions of dollars for, um, for community-based medical clinics. Because at that time, there were no community medical clinics until the Black Panther Party and other radical organizations began to open up free medical clinics in their community. Yeah, you know, you raised the question of the breakfast program, which was such an inspiration, and the free clinics, and then both shaming the government and also showing the people what was possible. I go back to the 10-point program, and I think it has a lot of resonance for today, don't you believe? I mean, don't you think the Black Panther Party 10-point program stands up over time? There's no doubt. <laughs> There's no doubt. The, the, every single point in the 10-point program and platform has relevance today. And yet it ends by saying we want, we want to control our lives. And that still is, uh, you know, an aspiration that, that we hold, but it's not something we have and I, I'm just curious about how you look at this most remarkable uprising that we're witnessing now, the Black Lives Matter moment and the, the public assassination of George Floyd by armed agents of the state. And then what that unleashed after five years of really powerful organizing by young people. And how do you see it? I mean, how do you look at it from your point of view, from your vantage point? Well, I think it's something that is for sure that is long overdue because we've had 30 years of Reaganomics and uh, Clinton Clintonomics, and uh, it's it's destroyed you know everything that we had, what little we had before mm-hmm. before 1980. It's created the conditions that we are in right now, and so uh, it's all. It also lulled the people to sleep. Uh, you know, for the last thirty years, you could say that uh, the people have been asleep in terms of what was happening to them. Um, but I think it was a combination of not just the not just George Floyd, but I think it was also the combination of the the, the coronavirus. You know, the coronavirus mm-hmm. it shut down all of our major distractions, all of our major distractions over the 30 years that has taken up all our time and energy. We're talking about sports, which had gone 24, which is 24 hours. Right. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking about um, the movie culture that mm. was developed. Um, you know, we're talking about um, uh, other things that, uh, you know, 
we all the concerts and music concerts have been shut down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so that has given people uh, because we had turned into a, a a culture that worships celebrities, sports celebrities, and Hollywood celebrities, and it kind of pulled us out of who we really were, mm. uh, and didn't give us time to really look at who we really were. Mm. And so when all that shit got shut down, uh, people are sitting at home, and for the first time. They have time to contemplate. You know, we, we haven't had time to contemplate for the last 30 years because of technology. Uh, but, but, but the coronavirus took all those distractions away. It's, it sent us home where we had to sit and think and watch. And uh, when, when people were sitting at home and watching and hearing about the murder of, uh, of, of uh, Floyd, that was the camel, that was the straw that broke the camel's back because we had a series of murders before George Floyd. And even before that, we had uh, uh, a lot of uh, uh, murders of young black uh, people and other people that were, that were happening uh, all through the last uh, decade. Uh, and and so, beyond that, and beyond that, I mean, and beyond I, I that, mean if yeah, you go yeah, back to the 10-point program, one of the major things that... that was an impetus for it was police brutality and the murder of yeah. of black youth. So yeah. it's a it's a kind of a it's ever since the days of slavery the serial assassination of young blacks has been a, a keystone of this country. I mean, so yeah, there's something accelerated. But I also think the organizers on the ground framed it in a way that made it very very powerful, very powerful reaction. You know, I mean, I think that that the way that we understand it now, like for example, you and I 20, 30, 40 years ago could not imagine a mainstream conversation about either defunding the police or reparations. And yet here we are, right? Yes, yeah, here we are. It's kind of amazing. And you mentioned the coronavirus and I'd never thought of it this way, that it gives people a chance to, you know, kind of be pushed back onto themselves and they have to, they have not only time to contemplate, they have to wonder what is the meaning of this life? What are we doing? Are you yourself quarantined right now? Are you isolated? Are you staying home? Well, I stay home uh, as much as I can. You know, when I have things I have to do, like go shopping or right. go other places, uh, I do that. But for the most part, I'm like everybody else in America. Yeah. About everybody else. Yeah. You know, are at you? Home. Uh, are there things that you think would be worthwhile for folks to read now? Any things that, given that we're in a moment of contemplation, uh, what are some worthwhile things that people might turn to or read? Where do you, where do you turn? Uh, well, you know, I think uh, I recently uh, did some research on uh, the, the uh, anti-Vietnam uh, War movement. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something a lot of young people should revisit because uh, there, you know, the, 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 Viet, the anti-war movement lasted over nine years mm-hmm. and it was nine years of constant uh, demonstrations, marches and protests. You know, 50,000 people surrounded the Pentagon. There were 150,000 people that were, uh, 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 shut down things in in, in D.C. Um, and there was a 
there was a tremendous movement. There was a tremendous awakening, just like we have now. Yes. Of 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 people, you know. And I was I was listening to an interview with uh, 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 Crosby with Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young last yeah. night. Matter of fact, and uh, I really was taken aback. To uh, he said one of the things he said was that um, that you know that movement. Uh, created a lot of change, um, but it, it. But look where we're at right now. Look where we are now. You know, look at you know that movement that we had in the '60s and '70s was tremendous, and there was a lot of people, a lot of white people even, who were awoke and who took to the streets and marched and demonstration. You remember Chicago when Mayor Daley uh, and his police. Uh, attacked all those demonstrators. You know, you remember what happened at Kent State, uh, you know, in Ohio, and also, uh, you know, there were also three black people that were killed uh, on a college campus in, uh, I believe it was, I can't Jackson. remember. Jackson. Jackson yeah, yep. Jackson State. So, uh, you know, the, what's happening now is not really that new. It's not really that new because it's happened before. Mm -hmm. uh, but let you know we're hoping that this time that that we can take it to the end that we can take it to the end where we can really start changing the structure of this government and really start tearing down the structure of racism and the structure of capitalism I think also what the coronavirus is is presenting us is it's, it's tearing down capitalism, you know, it's tearing down this capitalist system in a lot of different ways, you know. Um, and it's showing us that, this, uh, that you know, we as a, as a nation, uh, we can't continue on this way that we've continued, particularly the last 30 years, mm -hmm. with the wealthy getting wealthier and the poor getting poorer. Mm -hmm. uh, and this, this system of capitalism is, is, is towards the end because the world, the, the planet cannot sustain this type of super predatory capitalism any longer. It can't be sustained, you know. Yep. Either we're going to change it or we're all going to perish on this planet. Mm -hmm. I think of King's last book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? And I think we're at that moment where chaos is beckoning, but community is still a possibility. I really appreciate your point about looking at the history of the anti-war movement, the anti-Vietnam War movement. Partly what impresses me so much about the young people who've kind of created the narrative for this current upsurge is in our day, Vietnam and then South Africa were the two touchstones for whether you were an internationalist. If you understood colonialism in Southern Africa, if you understood you know, the invasion and occupation of Vietnam, then you were an internationalist. Today it's Palestine. And these yes. young people get it. They seem to really understand that the yes. test for whether you're going to be in solidarity with the people of the world is happening right before our eyes in Palestine. Yes. What do you think of that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I love to, you know, I, I love to, when that happened in Ferguson, when the, when the Palestinians... Uh, uh, sent Texas to the demonstrators in Ferguson about how to deal with the uh, the tear gas, right. you know, and that solidified 
that connection between Palestine and what's happening in Black America. And I, I've had a chance to go to Palestine, and I'm committed to the Palestinian struggle as I'm committed to any other struggle. Because I think what's happening in Palestine, like you said, Palestine is a touchstone, like South Africa was. Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, you know, things cannot continue the way that they have been going in Palestine because it affects the whole world. Mm-hmm. It affects the whole world. It's something uh, that is going to have to change as much as the change has to come here in this country. So I am, I'm really so happy to see that connection and see people understanding that the Palestinian struggle is one of the most important struggles internationally in the world. Tell me about your trip to Palestine. I've not been able to go myself, and I've always wanted to go. Uh, oh man, it was it was it was heart wrenching, heartbreaking, and it was also very empowering. You know, seeing the uh, the Israeli soldiers walking around uh, throughout the uh, West Bank and in and, and, and different uh, Palestinian towns and villages with their M16s, their fingers on the triggers, and seeing that monstrous wall cut its way through Palestinian territory, separating families and separating families from their farmlands, and seeing a, a, a olive field with a thousand uh, olive trees that had been cut off mm. by by the Israeli uh, forces, um, you know, visiting with Palestinian families who had been kicked out of their homes, you know, homes that they had for uh, for a very long time, and only to have the uh, the uh, Israeli forces come to their house with 400 soldiers in the middle of the night and put the family out on the streets and put in. Uh, 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 Israeli settlers into their homes, you know, seeing those types of things uh, was really, really uh, devastating. But, but, but the, the, the bright part and the greatest part was seeing the love that the Palestinian had for one another and the love they had for us and how they treated us and how they invited us into their homes. We got to stay with a lot of different Palestinian families. You know, they weren't crying. They weren't sad. You don't see any of that. Yeah, it, it, it's actually insp- it's very inspiring even to hear the the account of it that you're giving us because, you know, as you say, the people in Ferguson get a message from the Palestinian struggle, and then I you mentioned the big vast wall that they built, the apartheid wall there, and then a couple of months ago, seeing the picture of George Floyd painted on that wall, you know, I mean, the solidarity is really remarkable and it's something that you can feel it's palpable Uh, and i think it goes the other way you you'll be happy to know that in chicago where we have so many exciting grassroots organizations not only black lives matter but undocumented and unafraid um black youth project 100 asada's daughters the i can't breathe collective on and on but a group has just started up out of black lives matter called the dissenters and their purpose is to make the link between militarism abroad and militarized police right here in our own communities in the United States. That's a really exciting, to me, a very exciting development. Because, yes, because as you say, 
you can't be a revolutionary and not be an internationalist. And if you are a serious internationalist, it drives you toward being a revolutionary. Yes. Well, I, I uh, really appreciate your taking the time to be with us, Aaron, and I hope we can meet up again after the pandemic um, and uh, carry forward. But I'm, I'm really uh, so thrilled to have you on the program and have you talk to us about decades of being a freedom fighter and a revolutionary and never really losing that fire, losing that sense of outrage and also that sense of love. Thank you. I appreciate your being here. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Okay, Aaron. Be well and take care of yourself. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. You know, we're about to face what many people are calling the most consequential national election in memory, maybe in history. What do you think about voting? What do I think about voting? Um, yeah, I mean, voting now or just voting in general? Yeah, you know, I just I try to lo just locate myself within the context of our own political system and where I live. Um, unfortunately, I think within our system in the in the U.S., um, where you live kind of determines, in my understanding, where you live determines whether your vote uh, is important or not. Um, and so, you know, being uh, living in Illinois, which is traditionally a blue state goes to the Democrats um, pretty much 100% of the time, you know, whether I decide to show up to the polls or not uh, doesn't impact the outcome uh, of the election um, necessarily. So obviously that that's in the case of a national election. Um, but I think certainly, you know, over the time that I've been organizing, I've, I've realized how important it is to show up to um and show up and turn out for for local elections and yeah and, um and to you know put people into positions of power in local local government um that can do do the bidding of the people you know it's funny because you say that about living in illinois i have i have said that maybe three dozen times over the last several years that you know i'm in illinois my vote doesn't mm -hmm. count but it's important to remember why that's true, and that's because of the Electoral College. In national elections, our votes don't count in Illinois or a lot of other places. But what's the Electoral College? The Electoral College is a direct descendant of slavery. So there's no, there's no separating white supremacy from the Electoral College. They are, you know, cheek to cheek. And so... Can you say more about that? How, how, how is that? The way it works is the Electoral College, in the beginning, the reason it was set up was because the South, the Southern states, were not going to endorse the Constitution unless they could have a way to have representation in which they had more power than they had in the actual numbers of human beings that they, you know, were free people in their states. So that was where they came up with the three-fifths of a person idea in the Constitution. Three-fifths of a person, every enslaved person, was counted right. as three-fifths of a human being, not a full human being, three-fifths of a human being. And sometimes you think that same logic exists to this day. But certainly it does exist institutionally because the way you count the electoral college is by senators and representatives. So it over-represents states like, you know, like uh, Georgia, Alabama, Wyoming, you know, those places. And it under-represents New York, Illinois, California. So we get screwed and our votes don't count in a sense. So 
I'm with you with that. I, I feel it very strongly. Yeah, that yeah. has allowed me over the years to sometimes, uh, several times I've voted for Malik, not, not Malik Aline, you, <laughs> but I voted for my son because I felt like he'd be a better president than anybody running. Right. But I did it to throw my, my vote into kind of issue a protest. Right. Um, you know. Yeah. And, so and that, that's... That's national elections. Go ahead. Right. And, and when you when you asked me the question, um, you know, I kind of just ran through in my head how because, you know, as a as a voting age citizen, um, there have been multiple elections where I've felt uh, unwilling or unmotivated to participate. Um, and I think a lot of that uh, a few reasons for that. One is um, that I see I, I saw uh, the influence of money in politics. Um, and that, you know, to me, you, my analysis, my whole life on money and, and economics and um, capitalism um, has always been um, pretty, uh, pretty critical. And so to see such a, a heavy and blatant influence um, of money and, 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 you know, private interests uh, on the outcome of elections has always kind of been a turn off for me. Um, and another one is, is just the, the fact that we only have two parties. Um, you know, there's, you know, just at its core, it doesn't make sense to, to have a, a representative democracy and expect for two binary parties, uh, to, to represent the interests of the people in a, in a comprehensive way. So, um, those two issues particularly kind of have always made me feel like, you know, voting in the United States has been, is, you know, somewhat of a, a fixed contest. Yeah, it is fixed in a certain way. And certainly the two-party thing is, you know, I have felt for, again, most of my adult life that I, you got a choice between Tweedledum and Tweedledumber. You know, I mean, what the hell? I mean, who am I voting for? For one thing, the things that aren't on the ballot matter. So, for example, war is never on the ballot. War or peace is never on the ballot. Um, finance capitalism is never on the ballot. White supremacy is never on the ballot. So how do I choose between... Tweedledum and Tweedledumber. And when you talk about money in politics, that's, I think, one of the ways to situate that is that it is a form of voter suppression. Voter suppression includes, you know, felony disenfranchisement, gerrymandering, uh, discouraging people, having the sheriff show up at the polling place, intimidating you from going in and voting. All of that is true. But money in politics, the idea that you get on your, on your, um, email every day. Oh man, we're behind. We need five more dollars to run this race. That's insanity. What what is if you said to you know, if you said to somebody from another world, you know, the way you get elected in the in this country is it cost Obama a billion dollars. It's gonna cost the, these guys two billion dollars to run an election. Well what does that got to do with you know democracy? So I think all those things matter. But I I'll balance that with one other thing, which is when you don't have the right to vote, and people all over the world are li- are dying and fighting for the right to vote, and frankly, people I knew died and fought for the right to vote right here, so I have to vote. I make myself vote, but the, but I but I qualify it in the following way: I will vote, and I usually will vote for the lesser of two evils. I never think of voting for a perfect human being. Vote for the lesser of two evils, but I do it. Um, understanding that I can be a political activist for, you know, 364 days and 23 hours, 
And if for one hour I could take a little time out and go pull a lever, and I will vote for the lesser of two evils. But in this upcoming election, I feel it's hugely important that we have what I think of as a united front against fascism. In other words, anyone who thinks Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are going to solve our problems has lost their mind. On the other hand, if you don't think there's a difference in terms of the material lives of human beings around around this fascist and this fascist regime, which is a, a you know is a aspirational fascism, but it's moving relentlessly in that direction. I think you have to exercise your right to vote, fight for it, do it, and then recognize that the day after the election, you got to go back to work. Right. You got to go back to work being an active citizen. Right. Yeah. And that's what my time as an organizer has taught me as well is that. You know, it, it doesn't end when you cast that ballot. Like, that is the beginning of the work. And then, you know, putting political pressure, putting social pressure on those people who are holding those offices um, is how you is how you get your agenda passed. And I think, you know, that's a lot easier to see come to fruition in, in local elections. And, um, you know, part of, part of my experience in Chicago organizing has been around, you know, the state's attorney's race and, when Anita Alvarez was in office and, you know, we ran an anti-campaign, as we call it, called Bye Anita. Um, That's Bye, B-Y-E. Exactly. Goodbye. Goodbye, yeah. right. And, and the idea being, you know, not necessarily knowing uh, if the alternative um, was somebody that, you know, we as organizers and and, uh, and radicals could necessarily endorse, but knowing definitely that... Um, you know, highlighting the the transgressions of someone who has been holding that office, who has been given that chance and put into that position by the people, um, they can be held accountable in very w- real and tangible ways. I, I've got to tell folks who don't know about this campaign, because I learned so much from you all when that happened. So Anita Alvarez, a liberal Democrat, Chicago machine, um, she was our, uh, our attorney general, our, our district attorney. And um, the young people, you included, um, Miriam Kaba, the, the great Chicago organizers, the various organizations, launched a campaign without endorsing a candidate. It wasn't like all in for Kim Fox. It was like, we're holding you accountable by driving you from office. And it was called Goodbye Anita or Bye Anita. I remember I was on the lake and I saw an airplane go by tailing a, an advertisement that said, Bye Anita. I'm like, oh, damn, you guys went crazy. But what was great about it was it taught me something because you didn't endorse a candidate, but rather you said, guess what, next attorney general, you want to keep this job? We can drive you out too. And I thought that it, it kept things in balance in a really nice way. Turns out we got one of the, you know, one of the progressive district attorneys is in Chicago, and she's been moving more progressive as the time has gone on, as she's been attacked from the right and so on. And I think that, again, it's your movement on the ground that said we can hold you, we can put your feet to the fire. A great example of the relationship, I often think you walk towards fundamental political change on two legs. One leg is the mobilization of the masses, and the second leg is real politics. I think we spend too much time staring at the sites of power we have no access to, like the White House and the Congress, and too little time spent looking at the sites of power we have absolute access to, like the neighborhood, the the workplace, the, the house of worship. And I think that's where you all have taught me a lot about 
how these things are in balance. Right. Yeah. And political mobilization is about building a critical mass, right? Like the, the when once you get the people at the grassroots involved, engaged, and and you know doing actionable work, promoting the policy agendas that include our visions of the future. Um, that ha- you know that begins at the at the grassroots level. No, absolutely. That's that's our future, and that's what we have to pay attention to. So yes, my final word on voting is vote for God's sake, and vote for the lesser of two evils. And in this case, the evil is really, really evil. So and then look at Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as a door, not as a destination. The destination's way, way up the road, but we got to move in that direction. So that's my. That's my conclusion. My final thought on the matter is that the only people who can hold elected officials accountable um, are the people who put them there in the first place. So the work doesn't end with Election Day. It begins at Election Day um, and then accountability moving forward. Before I suggest a homework assignment to you for your consideration, I want you to know that we've been getting several great responses to both the free rights and the homework, and that we appreciate hearing from each of you. This piece is from Eleanor, who lives in upstate New York on an island in the Hudson River, in response to the question, how are you breathing? My family is spread across the country, far-flung, quarantined, and separated, but well. I've been practicing and teaching the law of climate change since 2004. Today, the proportion of carbon dioxide in Mother Earth's atmosphere is higher than 410 parts per million. It was around 380 when I became aware of what that number meant. The metastasizing wildfires, the drought, the deteriorating air quality, and the hurricanes and floods are all the results of the climate crisis of fossil fuel burning. People in New York Latinx community Sunset Park years ago protested the polluting diesel power plant sited in their neighborhood with banners saying, I can't breathe. Today, we see those three words exposing racist police brutality, COVID-19 racial disparities, and environmental racism going back generations. Breathtaking. Okay, today's homework is this. Meditate for a moment about concrete changes that you imagine could lead us to a more just and joyful, more free and peaceful place. Unlock your imaginations. Jot down a short list maybe a 10-point program, in the form of either demands or invitations or incantations. Look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget to rate and review Under the Tree on Apple Podcasts. Leave a rating, a review. It helps us get noticed on all of the algorithms and the podcast apps. Thank you for listening and tell a friend about the show. Major thanks to my comrades from Ergo, Damon Williams and Daniel Kissinger, supervising producers and audacious mentors in this enterprise. And to my workmate in arms, Malik Aleem, engineer, guru, hunter and gatherer, technical fixer, lookout, proud papa, caregiver, and healer in residence. Our music is by Tom, the Night Watchman Morella. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. Thanks for being here. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind. Until next time.